You're listening to a sermon from Leewood Baptist Church. For more information about us, visit our website at leewoodbaptist.com. We continue on in our sermon series through the book of 1 John, seeing and discovering what it means to be an authentic follower, believer, Christian of Jesus Christ. We desire authenticity in most areas of our lives. If we're collectors, we want things to be authentic. If we are in in human relationships, we want them to be authentic. We want them to be real. So we desire authenticity in our lives in an extreme way. Well, in the same way, God calls us to examine our lives to find out and to discover, are we true, authentic believers in Jesus Christ? We've posed this question the last six or seven weeks that we can, well, it's not even a question, but a statement. We can go to church for decades upon decades. We can be involved in the life of a church, and we can be just as lost as someone that's never stepped foot in the church. And so we've been, with that reality and that understanding, we've been walking through the last few weeks together studying what does it mean to be an authentic follower of Jesus, asking ourselves, am I the real deal? Am I a true Christian in Jesus Christ? And throughout the book of 1 John, John is giving giving us evidences of true saving faith in Christ. He gives us these evidences not to cause doubt in our lives, and next week we're going to talk about the difference between doubt and assurance. We'll we'll touch on assurance a little bit today, but those evidences aren't given to make us doubt, to have an unhealthy fear or doubt about our our salvation, but really to reassure us that if we are a true believer in Christ, that we are, because the the audience, the people that John was writing this book to was the early church, and false teachers had infiltrated the church and had been, be, uh, had been spreading bad teaching about Christ, bad doctrine about Christ. And so there's a lot of believers in the early church that were really asking themselves, what do I believe about Christ? Is this true? Is this not true? And they were very confused, and they had spiritual chaos in their lives. And so John writes this book to reassure them and give them some of the evidences. Some of the evidences that we've seen so far in 1 John 1, we saw that a true believer understands just how broken, how sinful they truly are. That a true believer is going to follow the commands of God, that they are going to follow and be obedient, that a natural love for God is going to result in a natural obedience to Christ. We've seen that a true believer doesn't love the world, that worldly system that's against God, but it doesn't love the things of the world either. It understands the perspective of the possessions and and things that God has given them. So as we continue to march on this book, we need to understand that John is giving us reassurances, assurances of our salvation in chapter 2. He talk about an evidence of true saving faith is one that loves the brothers and sisters, the church. 
A natural byproduct of being a follower of Christ is loving people, loving God's people, the church. So we're going to hit on that more today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. If you don't have one, there's a Bible there in the pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to take that uh, with you. That's our church's gift to you. We want you to have that. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, and let's start in verse 11 today. It says this, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So John starts out by saying a phrase. He's reminding us, okay? He kind of writes in a circular pattern, going back to his uh, writing, what he's written previously, both, both in this book and in the Gospel of John. He says, for, so he says, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning. What's John saying here? You've heard this before. I'm reminding you of this. If your uh, teachers always say repetition aids learning. So John is coming back around to an idea that he's already said. He's kind of saying, I'm repeating myself. I'm reminding of you this. You have heard this from the beginning. We should love one another. So John has already said this in this book in chapter 2, verse 7. The command was to love as being the word which you heard from the beginning. He says, you've heard this from the beginning. You heard this from Christ. Christ even said it. So he says it again here. So here's what John is communicating here, is that the basic Christian message has not changed. The basic Christian message that even Jesus' community communicated was to love the Lord God, your love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So the Christian message, the application of the gospel in our lives, is to love God and love people, to love the church. So he says it here again, and sometimes we can have this idea that. Christianity, our relationship with God, it's a personal relationship with Christ, and that's true. But if we're not careful, this idea of having a personal relationship with Christ, again, as we should, we should we're to abide with Him, we're to remain with Him. John even wrote that in this book as well. But when we focus, we can put an overemphasis on this personal, personal relationship with Christ, that we can have this idea that it's only us and Jesus who mat- matter. And what that turns into is spiritual selfishness, spiritual pride, that it's me and Jesus. But it goes more than that, that an application, a byproduct of this personal relationship with Jesus, the byproduct of that is how we treat others, how we love one another, how we build up one another. That's what really matters to God. Yes, the personal relationship with Jesus, but out of the outflow, the overflow of that relationship with Jesus, that then affects our actions. That then affects how we treat those around us, is the personal relationship with with Christ. And John gives us a negative example of this, all right? Doesn't it help sometimes to learn what not to do. Sometimes it's helpful to be taught in what to do, but sometimes a negative example can be very, very effective 
and aid us in our learning. And so John, here in 1 John 3, he gives a negative example of someone whose life had not been changed by the character of God, and because his life and heart had not been changed by God, it then affected his relationship with other people. And who was that? He says, verse 12, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So hold your finger here in 1 John 3 and turn over to Genesis chapter 4. You may or may not be familiar with this account of Cain and Abel. So we're going to read it together and take a look at it. Here Cain, his life had not been changed by God. And because his life had not been changed, radically changed, it then affected his actions. See, what we believe about God always affects our actions. Our actions are really the dipstick to our heart. How we live reveals our heart. What we say reveals our heart. How we treat other people, what we say about other people, reveals our hearts. So our hearts, our lives, our actions, really just reveal what we truly are on the inside. So they're this dipstick to our heart. So let's see an example of this. Look at Genesis chapter 4. Let's start reading in verse 1. It says this, the man, that's Adam, was intimate with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. If Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will, be a rest, you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear, since you are banished me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So we see here Cain was disobedient to God. God had instructed Adam, Eve, and their family, Cain, Abel, to 
offer a sacrifice, an offering to God a, a certain way. Cain did not follow those instructions. He becomes jealous, and he's furious, and he murders his brother over this. Now, the problem with Cain was not that he murdered his brother. Now, obviously, that was a bad thing he did. Where did the sin start? Where did this action start? It was about his belief about God. Cain said, I know better. I know better how to offer, uh, to offer a sacrifice, an offering to God. I'm going to do it my way. And isn't that human nature? It's my way. I know better. It's all about me. So Cain goes about it, and it leads to the sin of him murdering his brother. But here's the reality. Cain's heart was not transformed. His heart had not changed. His life had not been altered. So his heart, what he believed about God, led to his actions. So for us today, if we are a true, authentic believer in Christ, our lives have been transformed by what Jesus has done. And that then leads to our actions. Our actions is not what change us. Because we can work up the willpower for a certain period of time, and we can be good for a certain period of time, but what's going to happen? We're going to fall off the wagon. We're going to sin. We can't help it. We can do good for a little while. Just like if we go on a diet or we say we want to exercise in January, by this time, Valentine's Day rolls around and the chocolate comes out, we fall apart. And so that's human nature. So we can work up all the willpower that we can muster up and we can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and try to be good and try to do what's right. But if our hearts have not been transformed by Christ, it is not going to last and we are, we are going to fall apart. We are going to sin. We are going to rebel. And so our hearts have to be transformed by God. So by the transformation that the gospel brings in our lives, that then affects our actions. And how, what does the action look like? We love one another. We transform, our hearts are transformed, and that leads to loving one another, how we treat one another. It's heart transformation. So the reality in the life of the believer is that how we treat people reveals what's really what's going on in our hearts. If we are angry and we treat people wrongly and we gossip about other people and how if we treat people wrongly, that, re that reveals what's truly going on in our hearts. Because just like you would check the oil with a dipstick in your car, our actions are a dipstick to our hearts. And it reveals who we truly are. So John here gives an evidence of true, authentic faith in Christ is one that loves their brother. He says, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. It's a not, that's a natural byproduct of faith in Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. Verse 13. The Bible says, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. 
Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. So John starts out, he reminds us, he said, we saw this last week. He says, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Again, we come back to this idea, John even said it previously in 1 John 3, that the reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. So there's a natural friction, there's a natural conflict between the world and believer. Now, we're not talking about causing conflict, and when we talk about the world, we're talking about the worldly system and how it operates against God. That is anti-God. And so John, again, reminds us, under the inspiration of God, do not be surprised if the world hates you. We should not be surprised by the fact that the world hates us, that the worldly system hates us, that it's against us. And that would make sense that John would write this because he's writing to believers who are being persecuted by their faith, for their faith. They're being persecuted. They were being murdered and tortured and captured and put in prison for their faith. And he says, don't be surprised by this. This should not become as a shock to you because a true authentic believer is going to live counterculture. There's going to be a marked difference between the believer and the culture. Whether that was 2,000 years ago or here in 2019, the believer is going to be different than the world. Now, we're not to alienate ourselves from the world. We're not to to shake our fist at the world. And then sometimes what we can do is we can take this passage and, and create these holy huddles and these bubbles, and we can really just get very inward focus. We're to reach the world because God has a heart for the world. God has a heart for the nations, and so we need to reach the nations. But as we live a Christ-like life and our lives have been changed by Jesus because of our true authentic faith in Him, our lives are going to be changed, and so there's going to be friction there. There's going to be a marked difference there. So we as believers, we should not be able just to fall into the world's system and culture and just be able to go right along with it and there not be that friction and that conflict. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't be shocked by it. The believer should never say, what is this world coming to? We should expect it. Because we as believers are different. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. We are called to be different. We are to shine light in the darkness. We are to bring flavor to the world. We are to bring a difference, a change to the world because of what Christ has done this. But folks, this is going to result in a life of persecution and of hatred. 
Jesus even said, he told his disciples in Matthew 5, he said, blessed are you if you are persecuted for my name's sake. Don't be surprised by it. Jesus told his disciples, you will be tortured, you will be murdered for my name's sake. That's not a way to attract followers, is it? But Jesus is very cut and dry with his followers. That a follower, a disciple of Jesus, someone that claims the Christian, that our lives should be very marked, very different than the world. And there should be that friction there, and it shouldn't surprise us. But now John starts to give us some assurance. He starts to give us some hope here, because then he says in verse 15, or verse 14, he says, We know that we have passed from death to life. I hope at this point, after six or seven weeks in 1 John, that we're all starting to ask the question together, how do I know I'm a true, authentic, authentic Christian and believer in Jesus? John gives this to us. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life. Now, of course, John is not talking about the physical realm, but the spiritual. He says we have passed from death to life, and here's how we can know that we have. Here's how you can know that you have. He says because we love our brothers and sisters. John offers assurance. Again, the purpose of John's book here is to assure and offer evidence of true assurance salvation. So how do we know that we have true authentic faith? It's by how we love our brothers and sisters. Now, again, we don't earn our salvation based on how we treat people. Our salvation dictates to us how we treat people. So how do we know based on how we love our brothers and sisters? And he says, he goes on, the one who does not love remains in death. And then he goes down to verse 16. Look at it again. He says, this is how we have come to know love. How can we know what this love is? How can, if we are to know that we are true followers and believers in Jesus Christ, how can we know what love is? Like the famous song, what is love, baby, don't hurt me. What is love? How do we know what this love is? What does this love look like? What are we talking about in this love? Are we talking about romantic love? No. What are we talking about here? He talks about, he says, this is how we have come to know love. He, talking about Jesus, laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So this is not a romantic love. This is not even a love that we would have for a family member or a friend. This is a very extreme love. It's a sacrificial love. And he goes on and he says, this is how we've come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, and then look it down at verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. See, it's easy for us to say, oh, I love people. 
I love my brother and sister in Christ. I love the church. That's easy to say. But when we understand the reality of what this call to love really truly is, this is not an easy love. This is a love that only a person that has had their life radically, radically changed by Jesus can possess. Someone who has this love, this sacrificial love that's being talked about here, the willingness to lay down one's life for a brother or sister, the only person that's capable of doing that is someone who's had their life radically changed by Jesus. Now, we, 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 we obviously go to that idea of our physical life, of laying down our physical life for another brother or sister. But I don't think that's only what John's talking about here. Because I think in 2019, it's not a stretch for me to speculate on this. I don't know, I don't think that any of us are going to be called to lay down our lives for one another. I just think the odds of that are, are, are not there. It's possible, I'm not going to deny that. It's possible that you and I could be called to give up our lives for each other, our physical lives. It's possible, but I would argue not likely. But the application here of we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, it does not stop with physical death. It's a much broader, much deeper love than just physical death. And again, possessing this love of laying down one's life for their brother or sister is only someone that has had their life truly changed by Jesus Christ. Jesus even told his disciples in John 15, in verse 13, he says, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. So we're not just talking about physical death, but we're talking about a death to ourselves, dying to ourselves. That means dying to our own wants, needs, desires, and preferences. And that's a hard death to die. Because again, we are born into this world, it's all about us. We're born into this world extreme narcissists. It's all about us. So it takes the transforming power of Jesus to bring us to the point to lay down our lives, to die to ourselves for the good of someone else, even dying to our own wants, needs, desires, and preferences. That is what transforming love, someone's been transformed by Jesus and what Jesus has done. That is what a true, authentic follower of Jesus does is someone who dies to their own wants, needs, desires, and preferences for the good of another, and specifically a brother or sister in Christ. What does this look like? How does this live out? We'll turn over to 1 Corinthians and look at chapter 13. This is called the love chapter. 
Paul's addressing Christians, followers of Jesus like you and me. And if we've truly believed in Jesus and had our, have had our lives changed by him, we will have the ability to love like this and dying to our own wants, needs, desires, and preferences. And here's what Paul writes about this. He expounds on it. He says, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Look at it with me. See this for yourself. He says, if I, Paul, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul says, I can talk the talk, but if I don't walk the walk of this radical love for another, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Or what's he saying in Adam Carter's version in 2019? I'm annoying. I'm on, I get on everyone's nerves. But do not have love. I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. But I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about this love that of someone that has their, had, their, their life has been so transformed by Jesus. They have been so broken by Jesus. Their will has been broken by Jesus. Their pride has been broken of Jesus. Their selfishness has been broken by, G, by Jesus to where they are willing to die to their own wants, needs, desires, and preferences. That is what love looks like. And that is what the true, authentic believer is called to love like. And it's easy to have romantic love. It's easy to love our family. It's easy to love our friends. 
but only one that has truly had their life transformed by Jesus is going to live the radical love for their brothers and sisters. So the question we have to ask ourselves as the church, or if we claim to be the church, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, is do I possess this love? This is an evidence of having our lives changed by Jesus. Has my life, has your life been so transformed by Jesus that we are willing to lay down, to give up, to die to our own wants, needs, desires, and preferences? And the only way that this can happen is that it takes a great work and miracle of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But thankfully, because of the great work and miracle of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we receive that, but we also have a great example of what this love looks like. Because Jesus told his disciples in John 13, verse 34, he says, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And then Jesus even says, this is an evidence of true saving faith, because Jesus says, verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Faith family, this is a high, costly, holy call. And it will cost you everything. It will cost me everything. Being a true, authentic follower of Jesus Christ, someone whose life has been changed by him, it is a, an extreme call, and it's costly. Because as believers, as Christians, we are called to lay it all down, to be willing to die physically, to die to ourselves, and die to our own wants, needs, desires, and preferences. This is a true evidence of authentic faith in Christ. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for laying down your life for us. Thank you for dying to your own wants, your own needs, your own desires, your own preferences. Jesus, thank you for even showing us what that looks like. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before your death, you even prayed to the Father and you said, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Jesus, it wasn't even your preference to go to the cross, but you said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, change us, transform us, break our 
will break our pride, break our stubbornness and selfishness to the point where we can say, not my will, not our will, but your will be done. And then, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that as they look at their lives and they maybe here this morning, they realize that they don't possess this love. Their lives has not been transformed in this way of possessing this radical love. God, I pray you would open their eyes to the need of salvation. God, change them. Reveal to them that the only way they can love the way that they are called to love is by believing you and surrendering all to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you're in the Kansas City area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 8200 State Line Road in Leewood, Kansas. Worship services are on Sunday mornings at 1030. To learn more about us, visit our website at leewoodbaptist.com. Music